As he said, my name's Andrew Folletti. Such an honor to be here to get to speak to you guys tonight. And uh, I've been here on staff for 13 years, serving in the House of Prayer and here at Newbridge. And um, like he said, I help oversee worship stuff in the prayer room. And so it's just so cool to get to come and speak on these things tonight, things that I'm very passionate about. Um, I'm married, my wife, Ashley, and uh, you can put the picture up there that I gave you, Josh. There's my family, Ashley, and my two daughters, Lily's little firecracker on the left, and Amy's the cute little bundle of joy right there. So they are wonderful. I wish I could go into more about all that God has done in my life and redeemed and brought me into, but won't get into that tonight. So anyways, cool. Thanks, Joshua. If you leave it up there, they'll be distracted the whole time, so bring it down. Cool. So the text that we are speaking from tonight that we're going to look at is Psalm 24, 7 through 10, opening up the gates. And this is a famous psalm, uh, likely penned by David when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And so let's just read that verse. And I want to give just a little bit of context, just cover the rest of the verses, because I think it's applicable to what David is uh, speaking into in these passages. So Psalm 24, seven through eight, lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So, and then verses eight and nine, he just verbatim, almost verbatim says what he just said right there. He says it twice. So let's kind of backtrack a little bit and just look at the rest of the psalm. So you, you kind of have four parts here to the psalm. The first part is that God is creator. It says in the first couple verses that he created everything and he owns everything. He owns it all. He's creator. He owns it all. The next part is sort of this question that it has, has an invitation. It implies an invitation of uh, into the dwelling place of God. It says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can go and be with God, basically? And the criteria is that you have to have clean hands and a pure heart, not sworn falsely, and not have idolatry in your life. And then the next part says, those who walk that way will be blessed, they will know God the Savior, and uh, that they are like Jacob who seek the face of God. And that's, that's uh, what leads up to this, lift up your heads, O you gates. So you, you kinda gotta ask David, what's the progression going on here? And, and I kinda see he's declaring these different facets of who God is. He's saying God is the creator. He's saying he's the one who has a dwelling place that he wants to invite us into. And within that criteria, we actually all know, if we're honest, that none of us have clean hands and a pure heart. There's no way that we can actually go and dwell and ascend the hill of the Lord, but we know one man who was able to do that, and that's the man Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, who's hinted at here, I believe, and he was able to ascend the hill of the Lord. And then David cries out, he calls for us to, 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 to cry out, to lift up our heads, for this king of glory to come in. So I see God the creator, God the savior, this invitation to dwell with him, and ultimately this, this call to lift up our heads and to usher in the king of glory, the king of glory. And so the question here is, David, what are you referring to when you say gates and how do we open them, right? Because we want the king of glory to come in, right? Who wants the king of glory to come visit us? I do. And so we gotta ask the question, David, what are these gates and how do they open? Now, uh, possibly, literally, David's, I mean, we know David is talking about literal gates first. Historically speaking, Jerusalem had city gates and they had temple gates. And like I said earlier, it's likely that he wrote this, many commentators believe, in the context of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. So 2 Samuel 6 is where you find that story. Um, essentially, the Ark is lost to the Philistines, and uh, the, it's kind of a funny and cool and powerful story. The fear of the Lord hits the Philistines, knocks over their God, and they're like, we gotta get rid of this thing. So they pass it along to Kiriath-Jerim, where it stays for some years, and eventually David goes and gets it. 
and he ushers it back. This is where the story of Uzzah happens, where he touches it and gets struck dead, and then it sits at Obed-Edom's house for three months, and it blesses everything that's in his house, and David's like, we have got to get that ark back into Jerusalem. So he goes and he gets it, and I, I, you know, there's no way to know exactly when he wrote this, but I wonder if while he's literally marching back up with the ark, he's writing this psalm and he's declaring it to the gatekeepers. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, ye ancient doors, because the king of glory's coming. The glory of the Lord, it dwelt among, above the cherubim in the Ark of the Covenant. That was the manifest presence of God on the earth at that time. And David is bringing it, ushering it back into Jerusalem. And so I wonder if he was literally writing this while he's bringing the Ark back with him. And so, so the gates in this context, the, the historical context, are literal gates. But like many Psalms and many scriptures, there is a prophetic nature to them that is declaring something beyond what the natural is giving us a picture of. And so, um, so what are the gates here? Well, <clears throat> again, like many prophetic scriptures, there's a literal thing that happens, but it also often points to a future fulfillment. And in this context, it's pointing to the return of Jesus, likely. Uh, definitely, and maybe other, maybe other little moments where Jesus comes and visits. So, um, but there's something that we've got to understand here from this, and that is that these gates, they're personified, right? It's lift up your heads, O ye gates. David is actually, he's, he's personifying them because they represent people. They represent either the gatekeepers that are guarding the gate, or that we, in some way, spiritually, are gates and that as we lift up our heads, something opens for the king of glory to come in. And so it's important for us to understand who we are to get the identity of that thing that's being talked about in so many different places in scripture, right here and other places, that we are like gatekeepers, we are like gates, and we have this authority that as we do things, we can open them and we can close them. And here, again, he's saying, lift up your head, and there's, there's something that's, that that's showing a picture of, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. And so, let's look at a couple of places where we see this idea of gates being open, and um, <clears throat> two of the spots that sort of just jumped out to me as I was studying and preparing for this are, you know, they weren't passages that I would have necessarily gone to at first, but as I read them, I felt like the Lord was, highlighting some things and unfolding some things that were kind of cool to me, so I'm gonna share them with you. Um, Now, let me pause for a second and just say, tonight I want to sort of stir us for our identity and who we are as gatekeepers and what that means, how we open gates, and who we are as a priesthood that is called to tend those gates, how they open, how we see them open in revival and ultimately in the return of Jesus. And then in two weeks, I'm really gonna talk about specifically how we engage in those things in the place of prayer and the place of worship. So bear with me um, while I kind of unpack some of these things. So 1 Samuel 3. Now we've been talking about Samuel a little bit recently. I know Billy shared some things and that kind of sort of is why I was um, in these passages. And so some things just started jumping out to me as I was thinking about opening up the gates. So Samuel, he is a boy birthed by a mother who uh, was given to intercession and she cried out and essentially she rent the heavens and birthed a prophet that would completely transition the nation of Israel into a time of, one of, one of the times of their greatest revival by ushering in the, the King David and anointing him. And so we see Samuel, he is living in a time when the word of the Lord is scarce, okay? It's in this mundane day in and day out. He's a young child, like just think about, I think about my, my five-year-old and how her attention span is like all over the place. I'm like, how did Samuel sit in the temple when there's not that much activity, when it's scarce, it's boring, it's not fun, it probably, probably wasn't very exciting. It says actually in that, in that passage, uh, 
in, in, this, in this section right here that he, was, um, he had not yet met the Lord. So here he is, a boy. He's been dedicated by his mother who birthed him through intercession. And he's, you know, I don't know how old he is exactly, but he is ministering to the Lord, waiting on the Lord, and he's not received yet anything from the Lord. He's just waiting and ministering. And it's in that place that the Lord speaks. And we know the story, the Lord calls him three times. He goes to Eli. Eli wasn't very clued in either and kind of kept sending him back. And then finally he goes, hey, I think God's trying to talk to you. Go back and say, here I am, your servant, I'm listening. And so, um, so Samuel, he gets this, this command from Eli. Speak to the Lord and say, here I am, your servant, speak, Lord, I'm listening. And so the first thing that I want to highlight in this idea of being a, a gatekeeper is this idea of waiting on the Lord when it's mundane and not that exciting and listening, okay? Part of prayer requires listening, okay? And so Samuel goes and he postures himself in this place of waiting on the Lord in the time when it's silent and he's listening and the Lord breaks forth and he speaks, okay? And uh, this is what happens. When, when, when God wants to move, you know, he has his sort of preordained times and he goes, it's time for me to move and where does he go? He goes to his house, he goes to his people and he goes, who's listening? I'm gonna speak to the one who's listening and when the one who's listening is postured in that, that position of listening, he now can receive a word from the Lord and actually speak and shift the nations. And that's what Samuel does, okay? And so we often say this idea that prayer precedes revival and normally what we mean is that revival happens when the church is crying out and asking and that's absolutely right. That's the, the persistent widow, he brings justice swiftly to those who cry out day and night. But there's this other, side of the coin of prayer that prayer precedes revival because in the place of prayer, men are sitting at the feet of Jesus and they're listening. And those who listen and apprehend a word from the Lord because they're listening in a time when God wants to speak, then they're actually able to go out in the power of the Lord and speak the word of the Lord and that, that's when revival happens, right? Revival happens when God speaks and when God moves, not, not when men do, do things in their own strength. And so Samuel is sitting here, waiting on the Lord, ministering as a boy, and the Lord speaks and it shifts the priesthood, and ultimately Samuel gets to anoint King David who brings the ark back in. And so Samuel is this picture of a gatekeeper. Now why am I calling him a gatekeeper? Well this is what jumped out to me as I was already looking at this. Verse th three, verse 15, it says, then he, Samuel, opened the doors of the Lord's house. He was physically, literally, a doorkeeper, a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. And the Lord used him as a picture, as one who would open the doors. He used that picture that that thing in the natural, in the spiritual, it looks like ministering to the Lord and listening to the Lord and then declaring from that place of listening. <clears throat> so in a time where the word of the Lord was scarce, he sat in the presence of the Lord and ministered to the Lord. He was watching and he was waiting. And this is what it means, you know, prophetic intercession, the, the, like anything, anytime we say prophetic intercession, prophetic proclamation, prophetic worship, all that means is it's worship, intercession, proclamation that comes from the place of actually hearing the word of the Lord. Prophetic means I've actually received something from the word, something from the spirit, and it's prophetic because it's the testimony of Jesus. It is what he's saying. Okay, so if you wanna be prophetic, read the word and listen to the spirit because he's the one who's prophetic, okay? So look at this, verse three, three, verse 21. It says, then the Lord again appeared in Shiloh. So the idea is the word of the Lord was scarce, Samuel's ministering, now the Lord speaks, Samuel's this gatekeeper. Essentially, he opens the gates the Lord opens the ancient doors and this encounter happens where he speaks and shifting takes place. And then verse 21, it says, the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. Why? For it was in Shiloh that the Lord had revealed himself to Samuel. So 
Samuel not only has sort of opened the gates to hear a word for the priesthood, but he's actually opened over the region, over Shiloh. Now God is appearing again in Shiloh in a, time, in a place where he wasn't appearing. So because Samuel was stewarding that place of encounter and ministering to the heart of the Lord, he opened up over a region the, the, the reappearing of, of the Lord. And um, I wonder if, you know, Samuel sort of starting to break open the heavens again and the Lord beginning to purify the priesthood how he does. If in that time, you know, shortly after that, whenever David is born, that David is able to come into this reality of the Lord is returning to, to the land. And, and Dave, David's actually able to begin to encounter the Lord. We know he's worshiping the Lord on the back hills of Jerusalem as a young boy. And why? I mean, in, in a time when the word of the Lord was scarce, and now Samuel opens it up, and now David is actually able to encounter the Lord because of what Samuel opened up. <clears throat> so the Lord, in order, in order for prayer to happen, in order for these gates to be open that the Lord wants to open up, there's willing vessels that are needed. You know, we say this about the, the missions movement that though it's been prophesied that every tribe will be reached, it's not gonna be fulfilled on the wings of inevitability. There are real vessels that have to actually take up the word of the Lord and go, I'm gonna agree with this and walk it out. And so just like Samuel, I mean, God was gonna do this, but he, he, he actually wants to partner with us. And so he raises up a Samuel and he partners with him and uses him to actually usher in King David, who is a type and shadow of Jesus. So when a willing vessel steps into the place of prayer and waiting on the Lord, they take on the priestly identity of being a watchman and a gatekeeper. And like we just saw, gatekeepers, they pray and they listen. So in the, the next example that I wanna look at is John the Baptist. So again, I'm giving these examples. Samuel, he's a type and a shadow of a gatekeeper and we are called through, through the new covenant, we're called to be priests. The gatekeepers were priests. And there's all these different places where there's these pictures of, of doors being opened and, and gates being opened. And again, this Psalm right here where the gates are being lifted up at the return of Jesus. And so we have this identity of being gatekeepers. We can look to Samuel and go, I want to be like that. I wanna consecrate myself. I wanna live the fasted lifestyle. I wanna be before you, whether you're full-time in the house of prayer or you're full-time in the workforce, you, we can all appear before God in the place of prayer and open up gates, whether it's over our own hearts, over our families, over the church that we're a part of, over the city, over the nation, or the nations of the earth. We are the priests on the earth that God has set apart to be a kingdom of priests, to minister to his heart, to open up the heavens over regions, to see revival hit, and ultimately to usher in the return of Jesus, to partner with God in that happening. And so, the next example is John the Baptist. So John, he functioned as a watchman gatekeeper at the Lord's first coming. He prepared the way for the Lord, and because of that, the sheep listened to his voice, okay? Because of John's witness. So John the Baptist, he lived set apart just like Samuel. He was born supernaturally also. Um, you know, it seemed like Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren, and, and in, when Zechariah appeared before the altar of incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears before him and he says, your prayers have been heard. You're gonna have a son. He's gonna usher in King Jesus, essentially. So John is born like this through this place of intercession again, and he plays this major role in ushering in Jesus's ministry. I mean, Samuel was cool ushering in David's ministry. John the Baptist gets to usher in Jesus's ministry. Jesus essentially is walking revival and John gets to play a part in partnering with releasing that on the earth. It's amazing. And so we can also take great courage from John the Baptist. We can take some points. He was a man that was set apart just like Samuel. He was consecrated. He lived this fasted lifestyle. You know, both of them were Nazarites and they both, um, you know, lived consecrated to the Lord. And so as we do that, again, we set ourselves aside in the place of prayer, the Lord will speak. And when we get to, to speak from that place, our actions, uh, when they come from the place of hearing the word of the Lord, then it actually 
has power and it actually shifts things in the earth. And so we see this with John the Baptist. He actually gets a message from heaven, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus comes on the scene, God in the flesh, he literally repeats the same message that John is speaking. So we know John heard from heaven, which means he was waiting like Samuel. And so, so this is really cool. So we know, we know the story of the baptism where Jesus comes and John baptizes Jesus and it says the heavens are torn open, right? This picture of the heavens opening like a gate being open. Well, what's really cool is in Genesis 28, 17, Jacob had this encounter where he sees heavens open. He says, this is the house of God and he says, this is the very gate of heaven, right? And Jesus, in John 151, he says, hey, I am that gate. It's on me that the angels of heaven are going to ascend and descend. He goes, I'm the gate. So Jesus becomes this walking gate and John gets to see it happen as he's dunking Jesus. He baptizes him, he comes up, the heavens are rent open and now the heavens are over Jesus and his ministry begins. Three and a half years of full-blown revival uh, dead being raised, blind eyes being opened, deaf hearing, demons being cast out. And John, because he was set aside, gets to do this. And so again, where am I getting this idea that John is a gatekeeper or a watchman? Well, John 10, Jesus gives this parable about a shepherd and a gate and how the gate is opened. And he says, the watchman opens the gate for him. And I've always read that as like, I think he's talking about John the Baptist because John the Baptist is the one who ushered him in. So as I was putting these notes together, I was like, I better go see that at least one other commentator agrees with me on this. And I, I found somebody, so. <clears throat> and it's, actually, it's actually the guy that I read, is Dr. Constable. It's a guy that I, I, love his, I love his commentaries. And so he, he said, this is talking about John the Baptist. And so Jesus says of John the Baptist, he was the watchman that opened the gate. Now what's interesting is Jesus says that he also is the gate. So there's sort of this, this dual meaning. Um, but yeah, John baptizes Jesus, the heavens are open, and, and full-blown revival starts hitting through Jesus. <clears throat> so Jesus essentially, he's a walking gate. And what's amazing is that when he, uh, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension happens, he says, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on you and you're gonna walk like me. You're gonna do greater works than me. I'm gonna pour out my spirit on you. And essentially he says, you church believers, you are gonna become like me. You're gonna be walking gates. And where you go, you're gonna have this authority to be able to open up and close uh, things in the spiritual realm. So what's cool is we just saw Samuel and John the Baptist and we're like, this is amazing what God did through them. But Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, John the Baptist was the greatest man born of a woman, but the least in the kingdom will be greater than him. So that means every single one of us in this room, it's not that, that, um, that we're more awesome than John in some kind of arrogant way, it's that we have more access to heavenly things and to, to the, the things that the Lord wants to release from heaven to the earth, we have more, the veil's thinner for us. We have greater access. And so we can see John the Baptist, the way that he lived and what he broke open in partnership with God and we can do even greater is what he's saying. We have more access. We have the spirit living and dwelling inside of us. And so there's, there's two ways that I see us today, right now, until the Lord comes from, from, from the beginning of the church until the return of Jesus, there's two ways I see that, that the gates get open. And one way is in revival. And we see this like in Acts 3, that there's these times of refreshing that come. And it says, you know, if you'll repent, the Lord will send times of refreshing, which is revival. And, and throughout revival history, as we study it, we see there's always intercession. There's always these people that are going and they're getting before the Lord and they are banging on heaven's gates and they're lifting up their heads and they're going, King of glory, come into my nation. Come in and pour out your spirit and save the lost. And then the Lord goes, okay, it's time. 
He opens the ancient doors. And by the way, I kind of see that in, in Psalm 24, that like the, the gates, the heads being lifted up, the gates, that's like what we have authority over. And the ancient doors are the doors that belong to the ancient of days. And it's like he, when he opens and we open, that's when it like, pff, it connects. And so I see this, we see this happening throughout history. We see it at Pentecost. The church is lifting up their heads in prayer and the Lord goes, it's time, I'm pouring out my spirit and 3,000 come into the kingdom and the church is born. And then we see throughout revival history, the first awakening, second great awakening, the Welsh revival, men and women that set themselves aside like Samuel, like John the Baptist, in the place of prayer and they lifted up their heads to heaven and they cried out for the Lord to come and the Lord spoke and they spoke the word of the Lord and revival comes. And so that's the first way we see it in revival. And the second way um, that's, that has some very strong biblical uh, roots is in the return of Jesus, that the church is actually going to play a role in releasing uh, and bringing the, 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 the kingdom of heaven back to earth when Jesus comes. And so we see this in the book of Malachi. It tells us that the spirit of Elijah will be poured out before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus says, John the Baptist came in that same spirit, and he goes, but it's coming again. It's gonna come again. And, and what we believe is that what he's saying is that spirit is going to be poured out on the entire church, and we are gonna be like a corporate John the Baptist that ushers in the fullness of the kingdom at the return of Jesus. You know, Malachi 1.11 says that incense is gonna rise in every place. That doesn't happen without the gospel going to every place and without priests, you know, Christians taking on their role as priests, burning incense in every place. And when that happens, when that incense rise and rises and fills the earth, the Lord returns. So let's look at some more verses here. So who's gonna open the gates? So like I said, it's the believers. It's us either now in the place of revival that we wait, we tarry in the place of prayer, and we go, God, I'm opening up the gate of my heart. Start with me, let revival start right here. You know you have the verse in Revelation 3 where it says Jesus knocks on the door and whoever will open, he'll come in and dine with them. That's a gate, right, the door, it's a gate. He's knocking on the door. If you'll open, he's gonna come in and dine with you. But there's also this place where we go, Lord, come, come and be with us. Come and be here, our nation needs you. The nations of the earth, they're reeling under darkness and they desperately need you. <clears throat> and so I wanna look specifically now at the end because I believe if we posture ourselves with an eschatological end times posture, like what the, the Lord calls the church to, I think if we do that now, even if, even if the end of the age isn't for another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years, if we posture our hearts like it right now, then we'll break the heavens open in revival at least, right? If not, it, the last final big one. Like I wanna partner with the big one, and so I wanna live like it's the big one, because we don't know. We don't know when it's coming. We know there's some things that need to happen before, but I wanna posture my heart. I wanna have this like eschatological heart posture that, that is living like what Luke 18 calls us to live, like the persistent widow that's banging on heaven going, Lord, bring justice, bring healing, confront the, the pandemics of the earth and the, the tornadoes of the earth, Lord, the different things that are, that are causing uh, wickedness to arise and, and evil, Lord, we wanna see you come and break in with justice. So look at this, because in this, in specifically in the context of the end of the age, a lot of this language comes out of gatekeepers and watching and praying and lifting up your eyes. So Mark 13, 34, says the coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his servants instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. So right there, Jesus is going, look, I'm giving you a little bit of a parable. Part of your role right now, there's work I've given you to do. Go preach the gospel. Go love on the poor. Uh, you know, go love your family. Live, live your life in, in, in peace and obeying my word. But he says this little phrase, that there is this place 
of the gatekeeper that keeps watch for the Lord, okay? So Psalm 121, this idea of lifting up your head, Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Just this idea, the psalmist is going, look, there is a hope that we have. When you look across the landscape of the earth and the evil and the wickedness and the brokenness and the desperation, we can lift up our eyes. And so I think what David's talking about in Psalm 24, the lifting up of the head, it's this eager expectation, this hope that's rooted in the reality that he is the one who's bringing the help. He's the one we look to. He's the Lord that's mighty in battle that's gonna come and, and remove wickedness from the earth. We lift up our eyes, and I think that lifting up of our eyes to the one who, who's, who's going to fulfill the promise of Scripture, as we lift up our eyes, it's, it's opening up gates. Isaiah 60, one through four says, arise, this is prophesying to Israel, Jerusalem, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. So this is talking about the earth being covered in darkness. In that time, that time when the earth is covered in darkness, the glory of the Lord is just on the rise. It's just, it's coming around the corner. And he says in verse four, lift up your eyes. It's this idea, again, of the king of glory. He's coming, so lift up your eyes. Luke 21, 28, when these things begin to take place, again, the context of the end of the age, Jesus says, stand up and lift up your heads, O ye gates. He doesn't say that, but he says, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So in the hour of greatest darkness, the church is called to lift up her head in hope and call for the king of glory to return and establish his kingdom on earth. And so you see this, Jesus, he's, he's, he's putting this language together. Whether it's like intentional while Luke's writing the gospel, is he intentionally using that language to tie it to Luke 24 or not? I don't know, but it's very similar language. He literally says, lift up your heads. In the time when the, when the earth is reeling under the birth pangs and ultimately the great tribulation, lift up your heads. This place of, again, intercession and worship, looking to Jesus, waiting, listening for the word of the Lord that you can declare it. Um, Daniel says that there will be those in that time that will uh, cover many, they will cause many to see righteousness because uh, they're rooted in the word, they have their eyes fixed on Jesus. Paul, he essentially says the same thing to the church in Colossians in in his epistle. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ. He goes, since since there's a king that's on a throne in heaven that you have been raised with, he goes, where should you look? He said, you should set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. And then in verse four, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, when the king of glory comes, after you've set your heart on things above, after you've lifted up your heads, the king of glory is gonna come, you also will appear with him in glory. It's awesome. That's why we should lift our heads, because we have a hope. And you know, the, the thing is, Ever since God created the earth and he, he made the garden, he, he had this place of encounter that Adam and Eve would meet with him in and they walked with him in the cool of the day and, and they essentially, they were the priests of that day and they were tending the, the garden, the temple essentially, the place where God dwelt. And then we know they eat the fruit, they wanna be like God, they wanna have the knowledge of good and evil, they get deceived and they fall and God has to kick them out of that temple and what does he set up? On the east side of the garden, he essentially sets up a gate, which is a cherubim with the burning sword and he goes, uh, no longer can sinful men come in here because if they do, they're gonna eat from the tree of life and they're gonna live forever 
with a sinful nature and we can't let that happen. So he puts the gate, he guards it, but from that day, he prophesies in Genesis 3.15 that I am going to raise up a seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent and essentially is going to undo what just happened. And from that day until now, he has been working back to get to this place of redeeming humanity and bringing us back to this place where we can be with him in the garden, where we can, when we know now, in Christ, ascend the hill of the Lord and dwell with him on high. And that's what we're, that's what we're made for. We're made to be priests. And what we do here now in the place of prayer and worship is that very thing that we are longing for, that we're going to uh, lay hold of again in fullness when he comes and establishes his kingdom. When we pray and when we worship, when we get into that place of intercession and listening to the voice of the Lord, we're getting back to the garden. We're looking back to that place where, 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 where humanity was, was cut off, but now we've gained entrance through Christ. And so, uh, <clears throat> this, this thing of the, the cherubim that's guarding the way to the tree of life, Jesus has now opened that way, right? And we can have access. It says that we can go to the, the throne of grace in our time of need. We can appear before God. And so I wanna um, unpack some more of these verses in, in two weeks, but I'll just, I wanna give just like a little bit of a precursor to this idea that, um, that the church now, the more that we step into this identity of being priests before the Lord, the more that veil thins, the more the, the glory of the Lord is released on the earth because he's, he's, again, he's looking for those who will wait and listen and be with him in the garden, like, like how Adam was, like how Samuel was, like how John the Baptist was, like how Jesus was on the earth. You know, when we see Jesus going to the mountain to pray, it's like, you're God in the flesh, why did you have to go do that? And he's showing us, as a man, this is how we have to live. We have to live continually coming back and listening to heaven. And we are so prone and I, I mean, I, Lord, help us. We're so prone to doing things in our own strength, to figuring things out. This is, I'm wired this way that when I see a problem, I start coming up with my solutions. When we try to make plans, I just immediately go through my, my logical process. And the more I can, I can wait and stop, I go, Lord, what do you wanna do? What do you wanna say? What are you doing? the more opportunity I give for the Lord to speak, the more likely it is I'm gonna hear him speak and then I'm gonna actually get to do what the Lord wants me to do and there's a, it's actually gonna be successful in heaven's eyes. That's what we're made for. We're made to be priests before him that minister to him, that wait on him, that like Samuel, turn nations back to him. Lord, help us, help us. And so let's look at a couple more verses. Isaiah 62, this is one of our flagship verses in the house of prayer. <clears throat> verses six and seven, it says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Do you want prophetic intercession? If you want prophetic prayer, prophetic intercession, go take this verse and start praying, God, make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Because this is, this is the testimony of scripture. This is the testimony of Jesus. He's saying, until that happens, there's watchmen that I'm gonna raise up who are going to cry out to me day and night. They're not gonna stop until I come back and make Jerusalem. And what is, you know, we, we've said this often, but just in case you've never heard it before, Jerusalem becoming a praise in the nations, that happens when Jesus returns and lands in Jerusalem, or he lands in the earth and he marches into Jerusalem, and he establishes his father's kingdom on the earth. When that happens, all the nations are gonna praise Jerusalem because the glory of the Lord's gonna dwell there and he's gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem. And so it says right here, the Lord has set 
watchmen on the walls, O Jerusalem, they shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. So how does the church engage with this idea of gatekeeper, watchmen, opening up the heavens, opening the gates? Right here, day or night, we don't keep silent. We cry out to the Lord until he makes Jerusalem a praise. Lord, come, come and return. Establish your kingdom. Guys, this is, I did a study on the word hope years ago, all through the New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, everywhere where the word hope showed up. And it was one of the most powerful studies I ever did. Do you know, 99% of the time that, that that word was used, it was directly linked to all the activity that's gonna happen when the Lord returns the coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of the wicked, the uh, justice filling the earth, the, the, uh, the tears being wiped away from their eyes, suffering going away. All of that happens when Jesus returns and literally almost every time the word hope is used in the New Testament, it's linked to those things. And if we don't have a vision for that promise, if our hope is based on something else, like I hope I get a good career, I hope my family does da 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 da, I hope I get to travel the world someday, whatever, wherever we put our hope, it's gonna be deferred if it's not ultimately put in that day when Jesus comes back. And this place of intercession and prayer and worship, it's so linked to understanding that future day because you won't cry out day and night until Jerusalem's appraised in the nations. If, if what you're looking for is, I'm gonna cry out day and night until God gives me a better job, and then a year later you don't have a better job and you go, man, this thing's not working. But if you go, hey, I'm waiting for the return of Jesus and I'm not gonna back down until he comes back or until I go, until I go to be with him, then guess what? You're gonna cry out day and night. If the end of your crying out isn't Jesus coming back and Jerusalem being appraised in the nations, you're gonna be disconnected. Your intercession, your prayer, it's gonna, it's gonna wane. And that's why, you know, in Luke 18, Jesus gives the parable of the persistent widow that would come and continually knock on the, the, the gates of the unjust judge. And the unjust judge is like, I'm not giving her anything. And, but, but finally he goes, this woman is driving me crazy. I will, I will grant her justice just so she can leave me alone. And the Lord goes, will not the Lord grant justice to his elect who cry out day and night? And then he says this phrase, but will the son of man find faith on the earth when he returns? He directly links this idea of praying night and day, prophetic intercession, he directly links it to his second coming, to his return. And you know, in that parable, his elect, we are his bride. We're not a, we're not a widow, we are his bride and he is a just judge. And I tell you, he says, he will grant justice swiftly. I've been praying in that prayer room for 13 years now. And I go, man, 13 years seems long, but man, when Jesus sets foot on the earth and I've prayed for who knows how much longer, it's just, it's gonna feel like, like a vapor. It's gonna feel like a moment and I'm gonna be staring into eternity going, oh my goodness, you did grant justice swiftly. And all of our impatient accusations against the Lord, they're gonna, they're gonna go away. And so I urge you, take up the call now. Go, God, I want to be a persistent uh, bride. <laughs> I wanna be persistent in the place of prayer. So persevering prayer, that's what we need. And we can be prophetic by laying hold of the promise of scripture and praying the promises of scripture. Lord, watch, I'm gonna do prophetic intercession right now. Lord, make Jerusalem a praise in the nations. Make Jerusalem a praise in the nations. That's it, that's it, pray scripture. And then the Lord will begin to give you dreams about specific things and he'll begin to develop that more specific prophetic gift. But if you will just start with praying the scriptures, getting around, getting your mind around the prophetic uh, promises of scripture, then, uh, then, then you will be uh, uh, partaking in prophetic intercession. Psalm 102, it says, uh, verse 17, it says the, the cry of the destitute, the Lord will hear the cries of the destitute. And in that context, it says he's gonna come back and judge the nations. 
He listens to the cry. And here's the thing is we in the West, we, we're sort of disconnected a little bit from this idea of crying from, from, from a place of desperation because we have so much comfort and ease. But man, when you go to the nations and you see the suffering in the nations or you, you hear about it on the news or you hear it from some of our missionaries who are overseas, you look at it, you look at North Korea and the Middle East and uh, North Africa and Syria and all the, prom- all the problems of the earth, the, the, the crisis, the reeling of the nations, you go, man, if you can connect to that, it will cause you, even if you're living here in America, it will cause you to go into a place of intercession and prayer, crying out, Lord, bring justice to the Middle East, bring peace, bring, uh, bring uh, righteousness, judge the wicked. <clears throat> so listen, the gates, they're gonna open. Here's the thing, we have it promised. This is like one of those things in scripture that you can go, if I'm praying scripture, then I know my prayers are gonna be answered. So if you want anointed prayer, pray scripture. So um, Ezekiel 43, one through seven, Ezekiel sees this profound vision um, of the glory of the Lord coming back to the temple. So let's just read it. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. So awesome, Ezekiel sees uh, the millennial temple, the temple that's going to be in in Jerusalem after Jesus returns. He's gonna build a temple for a thousand years and Ezekiel sees that temple and he sees it being filled and it's the glory of the Lord coming through a gate, right? And so potentially again, the thing that David's prophesying in Psalm 24 is this very thing that Ezekiel is prophesying, that the glory of the Lord's gonna fill the temple. The ultimate fulfillment is when Jesus comes back to the earth, says he's gonna come back from the east of Jerusalem, he's gonna split the Mount of Olives and come into Jerusalem, the King of Glory will come back. And this idea in Psalm 24 that says, who is this Lord of Glory, who is this King of Glory? The Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle. He's mighty in battle, he's strong and mighty because he's coming back to judge the wicked kings of the earth. And guys, again, just like John the Baptist took part in Jesus' first coming, that God had partnered with humanity to usher in the first coming of Jesus in the ministry, his ministry on the earth, so too is the Lord going to raise up the church and is raising up the church right now to partner with him in the place of prayer, in the place of proclamation, in the place of worship to usher in the second coming of Jesus and the glory of the Lord's gonna fill the temple again. And guys, we've got, you know, we've got the glory of the Lord dwelling on the inside of us, but really it's a down payment. Like it's not the complete fullness of what we're gonna have in the age to come. The Lord is literally like Jesus and all the glory of heaven is going to be filling the places that we get to worship in the age to come. Uh, the worship team can go ahead and come back on up. <clears throat> so I want myself I want my family, I want our church family, I want us in the house of prayer, I want those of you who are working full-time jobs, I want us to understand this place of being priests, having access to the throne of grace, being able to open up the heavens and see the Lord come in revival and ultimately partner with him and, and be watchmen that are watching and waiting, gatekeepers that are opening the gates for the, glo- the, the king of glory to literally come back to the earth. And I know it's like, man, that sounds like too, too crazy, too epic, but it's the Bible. I mean, it's, it's where this whole thing is going. <clears throat> and I wanna be like Samuel, who while we're waiting in a time where, where it's like, man, Lord, 
I mean, I've seen the Lord do so much, but there's so much more and I'm going, Lord, we need more, we're desperate. I wanna be like Samuel and when when I'm not feeling the Lord, when I'm not seeing him move, when I'm not hearing stuff, I wanna sit and wait and listen. Because like Samuel, again, when the Lord goes, it's the appointed time, I'm going to come, where's he gonna come to? He's gonna come to his house, his people, and he's gonna look, who's listening? Who's asking, who's listening, who's waiting? And I I wanna be waiting, I wanna be there, I wanna be used of the Lord, I wanna be in that place so that when he comes, he's got a vessel to manifest through. So if you would say this whole idea of being a priest, being a gatekeeper, being a watchman, and just the place of prayer, the end of the age, how all that stuff, revival, how that all works with being a gatekeeper, with opening up the gates, if you're like, man, I, I need more revelation and more understanding on that. I just wanna ask you to stand up. <clears throat> We're gonna pray and they're gonna sing a little bit something over you. <clears throat> so Lord, we just ask you right now, Jesus, King Jesus, King of glory. We want to lift up our heads, Lord. We wanna open the gates. We wanna hear from heaven. We wanna declare the word of the Lord from heaven. We wanna be found in the place of prayer, waiting and watching and listening. We wanna see you shift the nations, Lord. We wanna see you shift our own hearts, our families, our church, our city, our nation, the nations of the earth, Lord. You said that you're gonna do it. You said every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, that there will be representatives from every tribe, tongue, people who've heard the gospel, who've received your name, Lord. We wanna be a part of that company, Lord. So I'm just asking you right now, Jesus, would you give us understanding of who we are as gatekeepers, the church, as priests of the new covenant, not sacrificing animals, Lord, but sacrificing the, 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 the praises of our lips, Lord, offering them to you and declaring them to men being found in the place of prayer and waiting, worshiping at your feet, gazing on the beauty of the Lord. I ask you, Jesus, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would understand what you're doing in the earth, what you're doing with the church, what you've done in the past, Lord, and preparing for your own ministry on the earth and what you're doing to prepare for your second coming, Lord, and for days of revival. I'm asking you, Lord, Find a people here, Lord, that are, that are waiting and watching. Give us grace, Lord, to continue to listen, to watch, to minister to your heart. So in Jesus' name, Lord, I ask you, would you give us understanding of who we are as gatekeepers?